Hello, my fine friends. Here's a little surprise bonus for you. Um, I was very honoured to be asked to present Time Capsule with Michael Fenton Stevens for his 200th episode where he himself was the guest. And this is a lovely podcast. I was an early guest on this podcast. It's a brilliant idea. It doesn't depend on loads of stupid hypothetical questions to get the guests talking. They pick their five objects they'd like to put in a time capsule and you get some brilliant stuff out of it and it was a real delight to talk to Mike again and got some brilliant stuff some fantastic stuff if you enjoy this check out the podcast my time capsule which you can get on your podcast feed and do subscribe uh Mike is an absolute comedy hero and deserves your attention so do I though so keep listening to this one as well all right slip sit back relax and enjoy me presenting my time capsule hello and welcome to the 200th episode of my time capsule I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of this podcast. No, 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 not for this episode, you're not, Mike. Get out of the seat. Come on, out. Move aside. I'm in charge. Hello, I'm Richard Herring, and for this one episode, I'm the host of my time capsule, because my special guest in this episode is the actor Michael Fenton-Stevens, who's usually the host of this podcast. The world has literally turned upside down. Mike's television credits include every single television programme ever made, but let's list a few of them for you. Slow Horses with Kristen Scott Thomas and Gary Oldman, pretty impressive. Five series of Benidorm as Sir Henry, the British Council. The Crown, KYTV, of course. My Family as Robert Lindsay's unscrupulous boss. Not Going Out, Outnumbered. Pete vs. Life, Persuasion with Sally Hawkins. Casualty, Doctors, My Hero, Nighty Night, Coronation Street, Footballers Wives, Holby City, Look Around You with Peter Serafinowicz and Olivia Coleman, Absolute Power with Stephen Fry, Trevor's World of Sport. I told you it'd be easier just to say you're in every TV show ever. I don't know, we have to list them all. EastEnders, Mr. Bean, One Foot in the Grave, and Only Fools and Horses. And that's naming just a few of them. To be fair, he's never been in Midsummer Murders, but is soon to be seen in the BBC's Ghosts, Amanda Yanucci's Avenue 5 with Hugh Laurie, and the second series of the Netflix comedy Hapless with Tim Dan. Downey. Pretty amazing stuff. Mike was a member of the parody pop group The Heebie Jeebies, the classic BBC4 radio comedy group Radioactive. So much love for that team. And he sang the lead vocal on the Spitting Image number one hit, The Chicken Song. That's his fault. By his own admission, all the films he's been in have been utter crap and not worth mentioning, particularly the one with Vinnie Jones. So let's find out from all that what Mike Fenton Stevens will choose to put in his time capsule. Let's just hope he buries the chicken song and it's never heard ever again. I can't tell you how grateful I am for you doing this. It's really lovely of you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an absolute honour. No. <laughs> and well done, and congratulations on getting to 200. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> I know when we came to your house, it seems no time at all ago, does yeah, it, really? it doesn't, know. And that was you, really, sort of setting us up, I think. Oh, well, that's... No, it's true, you did. You put us in touch with people at Acast. You told us how to do it. Well, it's great. I'm really glad it's worked out so well for you, and it's an excellent podcast. Well, maybe we'll talk about this on the actual podcast, unless yeah. we're on the actual podcast. But who knows? Um, <laughs> you know, it's, I think it's such a clever idea, because you get real perspective on people that you wouldn't get in any, you know, stupid questions like I ask you. Just by, <laughs> by choosing objects, people reveal a lot about themselves, and you will get... a 
good story. And also, you don't have to research anything, Michael, because you don't know what's going to come up, do you? So That's the clever bit. <laughs> so well done to you for coming up. But with it that. is weird to be doing it the other way around. Yes. It, it's, it's very strange. Well, I feel as if, you know, already I've let you talk and I've sat back and listened. <laughs> Let's see how I do. You can always correct me if I do it incorrectly. I think I've got it, yeah. but it's pretty It's pretty easy from this side, right? Yeah, it's, it's a doddle. <laughs> but, you just sit and listen to me. <laughs> I don't have your wonderful voice. You sort of slide into the podcast on this lovely syrupy intro from you and then and then you're away so uh, well okay well first of all you would think i would know what my five things were wouldn't you i mean i've done 200 episodes yeah and i've spoken to all sorts of people and quite often people say so what would you put in there and i go oh i, I don't know really and actually i nearly always say the same thing right and that is one of the things i've chosen right but generally I don't think about it from my point of view. No. I'm interested in finding out what the other people want to talk about. Yeah, but that's why it's good, because then when you're in that position, you go, OK, what would it be? I really enjoyed choosing. I think it would change as well. You could almost do it again five years later because it would be different things. Yeah. But I think a lot of them are nostalgic and a lot of them are historic, I suppose. But the power of objects to bring back memories mm. is so intense. It's such a good idea. So, um, yes, shall we? No, I'm a little bit frazzled. That's the only problem are at you? the moment. I am, yes. I got a phone call yesterday morning from Steve Brown... Oh, yes. Who's written this beautiful musical with Harry Hill. Yes. Which opened the night before last. Sure. And I did a tryout of it yeah. when they were sort of seeing it worked, you know. And I went along and sang through some songs and stuff. And uh, he rang me and said, Mike, what are you doing on Saturday? <laughs> and I said, why? <laughs> and he said, um, the fellow who's playing the parts that you sang, he has a commitment that he just can't get out of. Do you want to go on? Oh, wow. And I said, um, yeah, fuck it, yeah. <laughs> why not? Of course, why not? That's fantastic. Yeah, you're a long time dead, aren't you? Being, I always think. <laughs> yeah, you've been busily learning it and blocking it. And... I went to see the show twice yesterday. Right. <laughs> my mind is completely on, what the hell is that line? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm desperately trying to learn the lines, you know. Oh, you'll get there, but they'll presumably make an announcement as well, so you'll get a bit of goodwill from the audience. Yeah, I think I'm fairly safe. I did a play in Edinburgh where one of the actors had to leave just for a couple of days, yeah. and Sue Perkins stepped in learnt the part, probably got it 90%, and she had a script in mm. her hand for some bits just to make sure she was all right. But Amazing. It's the dream, though, isn't it? I mean, I'm not even really an actor and I haven't done much acting, <laughs> but the dream is you're on stage of a play that you don't know <laughs> any of the words <laughs> and that you haven't rehearsed and you've got to somehow boulder your way through it. That is going to be the nightmare tonight, it, it, isn't it? I'm going to be waking... Oh, God! Oh, my God! <laughs> All the way through it. Oh, don't. Oh, if you want to try any of it during the podcast, you can sing a song some, at some point just to, okay. and I'll let you know how you've done. I'll just stop and look at the script. That's good. So I don't know if you know how this podcast works, Michael. It's quite a clever idea. Mm -hmm. You have to choose five objects to go into a time capsule, yeah. four of which are things that you really want to keep forever and mm -hmm. one of the things that you want to bury away and throw away for good. It's such a clever idea, it's Michael. It's a very I mean, clever I, I, idea. I'm really glad I thought of it and I can't <laughs> wait to do 200 episodes of this. <laughs> you can't wait for the royalties. <laughs> <laughs> The thing with you as well, as I know from when you were on my show, but also being a fan of yours for many years, is you have done so much work over the years. I mean, I'm very <laughs> interested to see how much stuff comes from work and how much stuff comes from family, which I know yeah. is very important to you and, and from your life. But you've, you know, for... I mean, I don't even want to say how many decades, but a many, many decades you've been... Too many. ...consistently working, which is so unusual for an actor. Yeah. And I, I see you as an actor-comedian, but I suppose most of your work is acting. I, I sort of act being a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'm very interested to see what you have managed to pick out of those okay. many things. So what's your first item that you would like well, to... Well, do you know, strangely, when I normally do this, people always leave the bad thing to last. Mm. And I think it's because of the way the thing is presented to them. Yeah. Four things you love and one you want to get rid of. And so they think of the four things and then they think of the bad thing. And yeah. I'm going to start with the bad thing. Okay, I'll allow it. So it's your podcast. I'm going to break the rules. <laughs> I don't care. I just feel that, you know, you can get it out of the way. Okay, yeah. And then it's good, done. Good idea. And then I can have my moan. Yeah. You know, and I can get rid of it and I can forgive myself for it and it'll be gone. And then you end on something positive. The reason this podcast doesn't work... <laughs> it doesn't work. It's because no. it ends on a terrible low. <laughs> Let's throw away all the other episodes and start again. So okay. we're, we're going to start with the bad thing. All right, so the bad thing I'm going to throw away is my 440-yard swimming badge, (laughs) which I got when I was at school, uh, primary school, the last year of primary school. We had a swimming class every week and we went to the swimming pool and the teacher said, so today you can earn a badge. And you know the sort of cloth badge that you sew on your trunks? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those. Okay. And she said, so the top swimming distance will be 440 yards. And I said, is it not possible to do 880? (laughs) And she said, well, not in the time, I don't think, Michael, no. And I said, well, I think I could. If I do 440 and then I keep going, if I make 880 in the time, can I get an 880 badge? And she said, well, yes, we do have them, but we've never given one out before. And I said, well, I I think I can do it. I'm a really good swimmer. And she smiled benignly and said, <laughs> "said of course, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. And you could see she just didn't think I could do it. Right. So we set off at the beginning of this hour of a lesson, and I was a good swimmer, a good swimmer. And I kept count. And eventually I pulled myself out of the pool and I went, ah, I did it, I did it, miss, I did it. And she went, no, sorry, Michael, one length to go. Right. She said, but you've got out now, so you can't do it, I'm afraid. Oh. And I said, but no, that can't be right. Because I started at this end and I finished at this end. So it's got to be an even number. And that means you've made the mistake. I, I counted it and I've done 880 yards. And I was not an easy child. <laughs> and I would not let it go. She said, all right, Michael, now calm down. I said, no, no. And I absolutely lost it. Right. Because I was very proud of having done it. And yeah, I'd yeah. been determined to do it. And I managed to do this distance. And Mrs. Thistlethwaite, which was her name, <laughs> I've got a name and shame her, said to me, well, if that's your attitude, you can go and get changed now and you'll be lucky to get a 440. Oh, man. That is a, that's a terrible... I had a similar thing where I was bad at all sport apart from middle distance running. Right. And I did a thing where we did like a 1,500-metre race and I got into the lead and I was way ahead and because yeah. I was very good at this distance. And then I got to the end and the teacher said, no, one more round, Herring. You've... Oh, no, exactly the same. Exactly the same thing. They just don't have faith in you. Yeah, so they don't believe you. And and then you you almost start to think, oh, well, did I miscount? You know, but I know I didn't because I know I wasn't no. at the back. I was at the front or the first two or whatever. And when you're swimming a length at a time, one length at a time, yeah. that number stays in your head yeah. all the way through. Yeah. And, you know, you know you've got... So 440, it was 50 yards per length. Yeah. So... For 440 yards, that's 80, no. <laughs> I don't know. You should know how many it is. It shows how old you are because you're talking in Imperial. Yards. Which I don't understand, which is a shame because they're coming back, aren't they? We're going to have to relearn. <laughs> I thought I'd be very modern and do it, <laughs> and do it in the new method. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's absolute arrogance from the teacher because she said, oh, you're not going to be able to do it. And it's almost like 
it feels like she's done that on purpose. Yeah, that's what it felt like at the time. Those injustices that happen to yeah. you when you're young, they really stick with you, don't they? Mm. And actually, every time I talk about it, it's not often, but when it does come up, I get riled. Yeah. I can feel myself getting angry at the idea and thinking, this is so unfair. Yeah. And I should have an 880-yard swimming badge proudly sewn <laughs> onto my swimming costume. But no, it's the 440 that I put in a drawer and I never sewed onto my costume because I was so fed up about it. Oh, I like to think of you still having on your swimming costume, transferring <laughs> it each year to the next, year. To the next yeah. swimming trunks. <laughs> and I think those kind of memories really do stick with you. The other thing, I was nearly good at cricket. I wasn't very good at cricket, and I got better, actually, at cricket. Mm. But I was very, very keen to get into the cricket team. And I went for the trials, and the games teacher, like, read out all the names and said, right on the border, Richard Herring. And I took that as meaning I hadn't made it into the team. Because mm. oh, you can obviously interpret that two ways. Right on the border could be <laughs> you just haven't made it, which is the way I took it. And I went up to him and said, am I allowed to... You know, I was so desperate. I said, well, am I allowed to do a bit more training? Will that change your mind about stuff? And he just was confused because obviously he thought I was in. And then I didn't go to the next thing, obviously, because I thought I wasn't in the team. Yeah. And then he saw me in the car park and said, I gave you a chance, Herring, and you let me down. And, uh. Uh, and, and I just went, oh, yeah, sorry. Because then I didn't even go, oh, I thought when you said on the border. <laughs> no. You meant I was over the border, not in it. You immediately you fulfilled their own view of you. You yeah. sort of go, okay, well, yeah, I am a wastrel. But he didn't need to say, he could have just said you're in. He just knew that I wasn't really good enough to be in the squad. Mm. So he was throwing me a bone. But the nice thing to do would have been to go, you're in the squad. Well done, you're in the squad. Not, <laughs> you've just snuck into the squad <laughs> and say it in such a way, you know. I mean, I still do that as an adult sometimes that you don't pipe up and go, oh, I just misunderstood or, you mm. know, you've made a mistake here. And I've done it loads of times where you just go along with it this is the reason that psychopaths and bullies can operate because most people <laughs> don't have the self-confidence to just go no which you <laughs> at least at least you did have the self i did but only because i was a bumptious little kid but actually uh, the only good thing that came out of it is that i became very determined as far as sport was concerned after that i yeah. got into every team i spent Every Saturday playing rugby or football or cricket, I swam, I did everything. Yeah. And so actually I've managed to survive despite taking very little care of myself. <laughs> I've managed to survive to this age, yeah. reasonably fit. That is good. And I sort of wonder, because you do get those people saying, my report said, you know, he'll never amount to anything. <laughs> and I wondered how many teachers say that in order to spur you on to prove them wrong. You know what I mean? That actually it's a technique. Yeah. I don't think it is in this case, Mike. I think... I no. think uh, Mrs. Bumthistle or whatever her name was is uh, is a horrible person who didn't like you. You were too cocky for her, and she decided to uh, punish you. I think because you caught her as well. You caught her in the lie because yeah. it's one length. Put it. It couldn't be one length. No. So she either miscounted or she was deliberately lying about it. And I think she stopped counting after I'd done four forty. Yeah. That's what I think happened. Most probably. And she probably just wanted to go home and not yeah. stay there for twice the length of time. <laughs> but, you know, it's so... To discourage a kid like that, you know, I, my family are all teachers and mm. each generation, nearly everyone else in my family is teaching in some way. And you'd think you would get in it to be encouraged, but there are certain teachers who resent being teachers or get stuck in it and feel they don't like it and then take it out on the kids. And obviously that can be a lot worse than... I had a lot of those at secondary school, I seem to remember. Yeah. Ones yeah. who sort of had fallen into it and then it wasn't what they hoped it would be. Yeah. Or in fact, they were faced by a bunch of, you know, recalcitrant teenagers who just went, this is boring, sir. Yeah. We had a French teacher who really loathed French. <laughs> he would spit it out. Yeah. And then be really furious that we didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, it is hard teaching people things and it is frustrating teaching people. And I don't think I could do it. And I have a lot of admiration for 
certainly my parents who are both great teachers, but all my family who've been teachers. Mm. But you need a lot of patience as a teacher. And you would think you'd want to encourage people, but I suppose probably she got annoyed by your enthusiasm and your... I think maybe she thought I was a bit boastful and yeah. that I should be put in my place. Yeah. But it turned out I could do it. Yeah. And that's annoying, isn't it? But I've, over the years, I've tried to look at it because I do understand how difficult it is to be a teacher and I do admire teachers. And I've, at times I thought if I hadn't been an actor, I think I would have liked to have been a teacher. Yeah. And I've tried to then look at it from her point of view and go, OK, all right, well, so it's reasonable. But I still can't forgive her. <laughs> so I need to bury it yeah. and get rid of it. Maybe by burying it, maybe it will. I don't think it will ever leave you. I mean, she's presuming she might be very well be dead by now, right? I mean, you could go to a grave and bury the shorts in her grave. You could put them on her, and future archaeologists think she could only do 440 yards. I'm going to bury the badge 880 yards from her grave. <laughs> well, good. I think that's nice. We've got the bad one out of the way, and we Done. can wipe that stink off us. So let's move on. And what's your first, uh, your second one, but your first nice item that you would like to put in the time capsule? Ah, right. Well, it would be, and this I have mentioned on the podcast, it would be my dad's straw boater. Okay. My father was a solicitor, but he really loved performing. And every Saturday, I think almost of my entire teenage life, he ran a sort of an old time musical company of amateurs. Mm -hmm. They would perform all over the place and they were booked up months in advance. And then if he didn't have a booking, he would perform at old people's homes, anywhere. He would perform anywhere, my dad. He loved yeah. it. But one of the things he did was he wore a straw boater and did a sort of Maurice Chevalier type thing. You know, if the nightingale could sing like you, they'd <laughs> sing much sweeter than they do because you brought a new kind of love to me. I picture him with his straw boater on. And so, in a way, it reminds me of my dad and all the wonderful things that we did together. And I joined that group when I was about nine, ten years old. Uh, he sort of dragged me along and got me to sing sweet songs, which you know all the old people went, ah, bless him. <laughs> and then he was introduced me to songs like, you know, Following in Father's Footsteps, I, I sang that. Father papered the part, anything with the word father in it, basically. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I was clearly his son and had been dragged into the act. And that was my life. I, every Saturday night... We would go off to some church hall. They'd set up the mics, the drums would be set up, and we would perform. Actually, I do have, I have a recording of my father uh, performing. One of the things he did, he, so he had several acts. One, he would do an Al Jolson act uh, and come on and sing in the style of Al Jolson. Mm -hmm. uh, then he did this Maurice Chevalier sort of crooner type act. But he also did his Irish act which is where he told a number of very inappropriate jokes, <laughs> including the one. The judge said to Murphy, how come you keep beating your wife? And Murphy said, superior footwork, my lord, <laughs> which is a terrible joke. Yes. But I'm going to play you a little bit of my dad singing on stage from one of these shows from about 19, probably 68, 69, something like that. Do you want to hear it? Yes, of course. Okay, here we go.
Oh, amazing. There he is, yes. That's amazing. He would do that and then go into his um, Irish joke routines. And, you know, <laughs> some of them I think would still work now. There was a, <laughs> there's a lovely joke he told. The priest said to Patrick, he said, Patrick, your mother told me she gave you 50 pence to put into the plate on Sunday. And she said, and I watched you, and all you put in was two pence. And you know what happens to little boys who do that, don't you? And he said, yes, Father. They go to the Odeon on a Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. nice. Yeah, that's fine. That, that's fine. That one's okay. That we one's can, okay. You can definitely do that one. <laughs> terrible, terrible jokes. <laughs> yeah. The other one's almost so bad, it's almost all right again. Like, it's transgressing so many <laughs> lines gone round. for the modern world that you kind of go, okay, we'll, we'll let it go because it's too much. Yeah, too. no, so let's not go into it. <laughs> so, in fact, as a result of that, very happy memories, and I, I loved performing with my dad, and it was great fun. And it gave me that joy of being on stage, yeah. you know, having dragged on there and overcoming your nerves. I realised how much fun it was. Yeah. And I've, I've never, well, as is the fact that I'm going on to do this show on Saturday, I've never been frightened of going on stage since. Yeah, I love the idea. I run onto stage. I really enjoy being on stage. So yeah. I thank him for that enormously, and it's meant that my life has been just one load of fun. Of course, yeah. Been brilliant. And did he live to see you see on TV and your success on TV? Yeah. He did, thankfully. Yes, yeah, great. he did. Because that must have meant a lot. Having gone from he was a sort of amateur actor, was was he? Absolutely, yeah. To yeah. see you taking that on, and I think that's a lovely thing for a parent to see that. Mm. In fact, when he died, I found that he had a, a scrapbook. Oh right, I didn't know anything about it. He had yeah. clippings of everything that I'd been mentioned in in the paper. Oh, lovely! He did once we were performing at the Churchill Theatre in Bromley as Radioactive. Yeah, which is something I'll talk about later. But um, Angus Deaton came in and said to me, "Your dad's outside," and I said, "Is he? Why don't you bring him in?" He said, "No, he's he's walking up and down outside with a billboard on his chest, <laughs> and he had a poster from the show walking up saying, "Great show on here." Come and see the show. And it was, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, he was trying to drum up support. And I went wow. out to him and said, Dad, what are you doing? He said, well, I just thought I'd, you know, try and help out. And I said, we're sold out. <laughs> <laughs> Bless him. Um, he was a lovely man, and he was a very successful solicitor. He did extraordinary things in his career. But he was most happy when he was performing on stage. Every holiday, we would go to holiday camps when I was a kid in order that he could perform. Yeah. He took very few clothes with him apart from costume. <laughs> so his suitcase was full of things for the topsy-turvy competition, for the king of the week, you know, the caveman competition, and just endless things he would wear, and wigs and moustaches and all <laughs> sorts of things. So the whole week, he would just be going around having a ball, entertaining people. Yeah. The people who actually were employed to entertain the place, they loved him. I mean, they really did. Of course. You know, you would think that maybe they'd go, oh, bloody hell, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, they always went, oh, I remember people saying, ah, Harry, good, I'll get the week off. Great. Well, and he sounds like he's very good. You know, like the problem with someone who's sometimes someone who's keen to get involved is they're not actually yeah. all that good. No. <laughs> so if someone comes along, it's talented enough to do it for nothing. Yeah. And you can sit back. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I chose my vent, my great, I must have done my great grandfather's ventriloquist dummy. Yeah. I think I chose. Um, yeah. But since I did your show during lockdown, I started really kind of trying to master the ventriloquism and I do a ventriloquist show with it now. Podcast. Yeah. So a, a sort of YouTube show and podcast yeah. 
And it's kind of silly and, you know, it's not what my great-granddad who made the puppet would have expected the stuff to be because <laughs> he, he was a Methodist, uh, well, not a minister, but he, he helped out the church or the chapel mm. or whatever they had and uh, he would use these dolls to uh, spread the word of God, which is not exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> and my granddad would use them as a headmaster in lessons, but my dad said both of them were absolutely terrible at ventriloquism. <laughs> and Jesus said, do not drink, especially don't have a gottle of gear. <laughs> <laughs> They're horrific looking things, and I'm sure they still look terrific even back then. But you know, it's, there's something nice about when you have stuff like that, and when you're passing down something, you know, that those puppets, you know, one of my kids might take them on and do something with them, and you know, you've got no control over what it is. It's 130 years. We found some newspaper inside one of the legs. It was made in 1892, so it's 130 wow. years old and still. But it's the same thing. It's just that lovely connection of. And you actually working together as well, I think that's just lovely. Yeah, it was lovely. It was lovely. We used to sing the Laurel and Hardy song. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, on the trail of the Lonesome Pine. And uh, in those days, of course, I could sing the, the, high, one. the high part as easily <laughs> as I could sing the other parts. Not so much these days, but there you go. But, um, yeah, so that was a great thing to be working with him. He was a terrible rehearser. That's all I remember. I could never get him to rehearse. I would say, look, if we just rehearse this, we can really tighten up that harmony. He'd go, no, it'd be all right. We'd be fine. And he did nearly always just sort of bumble his way through things. Yeah. But he was so good at it. He had such a quick comedy brain, actually, that I never saw him in trouble. No. I never saw him sort of lost in front of an audience. Right. You know, it was great. But, of course, it also meant that as I became a teenager, I was off doing these old-time musicals every Saturday night. There's parties going on everywhere. <laughs> and luckily, the show would finish at sort of, you know, 10 o'clock because old people don't like to stay up beyond that time. Yeah. And they would all go home and my dad would drop me at parties. So oh, I would wow. turn up to, I would turn up sober to parties where all my mates were drunk. <laughs> and not only that, we are talking about parties in the early 70s yes. where everybody wore platform shoes. <laughs> and I would, having come from a stage show, would be wearing flat sneakers or, you know, white shoes I had, flat white shoes. So I, for many years, and it still works now, I, people I was at school with, they call me Little Mickey, <laughs> which is not nice. Uh, but it's because they think of me as small because they were all wearing these great big platform shoes. Yeah. And I would turn up with these little things. So in fact, I was the bloke who stood in the kitchen and made everybody laugh, but I never got to do the last dance. Right. Because I was too small. All these girls towering over me in their great big platform <laughs> shoes. And of course, eventually, like many things in life, particularly with me, when I finally went to buy myself a pair of platform boots, I thought, so, right, come on, this is daft. I've got to get some. So I went into this shop and there was this fantastic pair of white platform boots, well, cream they were, with a brown edging. It looked amazing. And they were huge. They were about four inches. Mm -hmm. And I put them on and I bought them. And they were clumped out of the shop in these things and sort of looked around. And you know that, that thing when you've just missed something? Mm. You've just missed the moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I, that was me. I looked around this high street in Orpington. <laughs> Everybody there was the height of fashion, obviously. <laughs> and and no, nobody was wearing platform oh. boots. And I thought... Too late. And I went home, took them off, put them in the cupboard, never wore them again. Oh. Still little Mickey. little Mickey. And I'm hoping it's because they called me that because of my size in yes. height. Well, I can't attest to anything else. <laughs> Maybe by the end of the podcast, we'll find out. If it goes very, very well. <laughs> you never know where we're going to go. Well, I'll let you put the boat in. I'm going to let you put the shoes in as well with the boat and count that as one item. Okay. Just because that's a nice bookend to that story. What is your third item? Right. The third thing I'm going to put in is a jade wedding ring. 
which is the rings that my wife chose for us to get married with. And then at the last minute, we'd sort of, well, I sort of lost my bottle <laughs> and said, I'm not sure that the Catholic priest is going to be happy with this. So I bought a pair of gold rings from my uncle, strangely enough, who was a jeweller. Okay. Uh, and it turns out that he really ripped me off. <laughs> <laughs> That's my family. There we are. Yeah, but he, he sold me these gold rings. But we always regarded the jade ring as our wedding ring. Mm. Now, my wife still has hers, but I wore mine for about three weeks and then I was on stage and, and I slammed my hand down on the desk in fury in one scene and the thing just shattered oh. and went everywhere. So it only lasted about three weeks, but I'd like to have it because, um, well, my wife and I, we've been married for 41 years. Amazing. It is amazing. I can't believe it. I mean, from her point of view, I don't know how she stuck you out for that long, Michael, that's all I'm yeah, saying. that's what's amazing about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary. You know, I mean, we met when I was 20, she was 19, at college, yeah. we started going out three days before my 21st birthday. We moved in together very shortly after that. And she then quit her course because she didn't like it. And she worked in the kitchens at the university. And so she sort of um, kept me through university <laughs> and fed me, certainly fed me. Sure. It was great. All the leftovers kept coming back. So we've been together ever since. We just went through life together, really. I feel that all my adult life has been spent with her. Yeah. I can't, you know, it's weird. I can't, I certainly wasn't an adult when I met her, even though it was just before my 21st birthday. I was still a, you know, a little boy. Terrible. I remember her when she first moved in with me. She said, When did you last wash these sheets? <laughs> and I said, What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and really, we're talking months, yeah. months and months I'd not washed them. Right. Terrible. That's yeah. teenage boys for you. So I was really still, you know, I'd been released from home and I was a mess. And she's made me who I am. She's molded me into the person I am. She's changed my character, Yeah, I'm glad to say. She's taught me nearly everything I know and has stuck with me, really. You know, it's been great. And shortly after that, we left, we came down to London, we got married. We had children almost immediately, two children. Mm -hmm. Now I've got grandchildren and it's extraordinary. So Yeah, it's quite a rare thing. My parents met when they were 13 and are now 85 and 84. Wow. So they've been together for, what, 73 years or mm. something they've been together. Yeah. That's the previous generation, obviously, where I think that did happen a bit and people do stay together that long. But it's quite a rarity now, I think, for people, mm. and especially in show business, for people to um, be approaching their golden wedding. Well, maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's the answer because, in fact, she's nothing to do with show business. Right. And she's never been particularly interested in it. Yeah. She's not impressed by it. You know, if I start talking about it, she says, yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> and then I did this and then I did that and that got a big laugh. And yeah, 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 okay. What do you want for dinner? You know, she's not bothered yeah. at all. Uh, mm -hmm. She's incredibly bright, my wife. She's a doctor of biochemistry which she did after we'd had children. She went back to school and studied for her A-levels at a local girls' school. Mm -hmm. And then she went to Sussex University and did a degree in biochemistry, and then she did a PhD. And she was a research scientist for many years, and then she ran a bookshop, and now she works for um, she works for QI. Right. She's a QI elf. Oh, wow. Right. I didn't know that. Mm. That's amazing. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's lovely. And it's the wedding ring is such a potent thing, and it's very weird for it to break. My mum, I remember my mum losing her wedding ring. Yeah. We were on holiday in France, and we went to a swimming pool, and it must have slipped off a finger in the pool, and we searched that pool for two hours. 
and everyone helped us, but maybe someone helped themselves to it, or maybe it just went down a little drain or something. Mm. I remember how upset she was. It's obviously just a symbol, and it's obviously yeah. just a piece of metal or whatever it is, or jade. But it is that thing that you give that person at that moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, that moment when you're getting married and you're making those vows, yeah. and you hand that over. Yeah. It is a precious thing. So, I mean, I then also lost the gold ring that we right. had. So I've been through about three or four, actually. Okay. I was asked by a costume person to take it off because they said the ring will be in close focus when you're yeah. seen and you're not supposed to be married. So I said, can I just move it to the other hand? She said, no, best if you take it off. So I said, okay, well, it, it, it's my wedding ring, so, you know, be careful. And they said, yeah, of course, you know. When we finished, I said, have you got my ring? She said, yes, yes, I, I put it in your pocket. And I said, oh, you were going to... Oh, okay. It wasn't there. <laughs> oh, it's gone. And we couldn't find it anywhere. It was terrible. Another one I took off again for a play and put it in the drawer in the dressing room. And then I forgot that I'd put it in the drawer in the <laughs> dressing room and I went home. And that weekend, Ralph McTell used that dressing room. Okay. And when I went back, there was no wedding ring there. <laughs> right. So. You know, I'm not saying that Ralph McTell nicked my wedding ring, but that could be my autobiography title. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he might, he might have given it to a homeless person on the streets of London. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that old man that walks the streets of London? <laughs> he better give something back to them. You know, he's made a living out of that song. So uh, I, hope, I hope he's donated some to the old man who walked the streets of London. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, you know, maybe that's why your marriage has lasted so long, because in a way that's a new marriage. Every time you lose a wedding ring, it's sort there of a remarriage. Are. Maybe. I mean, it was a very strange, <laughs> wedding we had we got married in her parents lived in Oswestry in Shropshire so everybody who came to it almost everybody had to travel up to Oswestry in Shropshire apart from her parents uh, I think we did the whole wedding now this is everything for less than 900 pounds right and that's our honeymoon we had three days in Paris which uh, we went to on a train uh, on the boat train yeah it's brilliant yeah yeah so it was fairly cheap <laughs> <laughs> the meal the meal cost four pounds a head there were 50 people came but it was a brilliant day we had the reception in the local hotel and then we went back to Maddie's parents house and we had a party that went on you know but she made her own wedding dress yeah out of curtain material I bought a suit from uh, Top Man, cost me £94, I think. Right. <laughs> very expensive, very yeah. flash. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the way to do a wedding, though. We were going to do it very cheaply. Mm. We got an engagement we wanted to get married within two or three months. We've been together for a while by then. And we were just going to register office above the pub. Katie bought a dress in the sales that wasn't a wedding dress, it was just a really nice white dress. And then we kind of, things got moved on a little bit and we realised we could do a bit, you know, the money the, the pub was going to cost us. We found a nice hotel that did something similar, but it was a bit grander, but we didn't spend loads and loads. But it, but then Al Murray bought me a suit, which I think cost about £2,000. <laughs> so I was, I was wearing a £2,000 suit, a handmade suit, and my wife was wearing a £95 dress or something like that. It was, she looked amazing, but... It was yeah. very simplistic, but... Um... Yeah, I've, I've always thought that my wife's wedding dress sort of sums her up, really. It was made out of curtain material and it was floral. <laughs> right. So she absolutely was not going to go down the route of, I'm wearing a big white wedding dress. Sure. No, no way. No. Yeah, she made it herself. Well, I like her very much from all of these stories. Yes. So well done to you. Thank you. Bad luck to her, I want to say, Mike, with no offence... <laughs> But that's the case in most marriages, I think. It's felt like 10 years for me. For her, it's been 150. <laughs> a life sentence. She stuck with it, and that's why I admire her for doing that. But, oh, uh, brilliant. But how lovely. Well, that's again, that's another personal one. Yeah. So the second one had a bit of showbiz in it. What is your fourth choice for your time capsule? Well, it is quite showbiz. Yeah, good. 
Okay, it's time for a short ad break, but we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Let's find out what else Mike Fenton Stevens would like to put in his time capsule. Is going to be a white scarf with a piece of wire sticking through it. <laughs> I wondered whether that I, that did occur to me whether something from those days might be one of the items. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you say from those days. For me, it's very <laughs> strangely, and when you start something, I mean, so this is because that's what we wore as a member of the Heebie-Jeebies, which yeah. is the comedy song that I did with Angus Deaton and Philip Pope, and that came out of the show that we did in Edinburgh as students, and we did the show in Edinburgh, and this song had such an effect on the audience. It was extraordinary. Uh, almost without a doubt, simply because of that song, yeah. we got offered a pilot by Jimmy Mulville, come down to London and do a radio pilot, which launched us into our radio career, doing mm -hmm. Radioactive on Radio 4. And then at the same time, we got offered a record deal. Do you want to record it? And we said, OK. And they said, can you do anyone else? And Phil said, yeah, I can do... Who do you want me to do? I can do anybody. And they went, OK, great. So we then, along with Richard Curtis, we wrote lots of different songs and made a whole album, which we recorded at Strawberry Studios, which is where 10CC did all their recording. Right. It was amazing. We, this all happened really quickly. We did tours of this country, playing all the colleges. We performed all over Australia. We toured Australia three or four times, I think. It was fantastic. We went all over the world singing this song. And then you think to yourself, well... Eventually, people are going to go, well, uh, sorry, who are you parodying? <laughs> the Bee Gees. But, do you know, every single time we've revived it, yeah. and, and amazingly, we can still, well, mostly Phil Pope, can still sing this amazing song. He's extraordinary. So, we, you know, we, we did it on brilliant things like Tis Was. Yeah. We drove down from Stirling sort of through the night in a camper van in order to appear on Tis Was and then went back to do a show in Stirling that night. And we walked into the thing and the, the man said, yeah, thanks very much for coming, guys. Uh, I'm afraid we're a bit busy today, so you're going to have to share a dressing room. We went, OK. And he opened the dressing room door and there standing with his top off shaving with sting. <laughs> and uh, it's just about the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, yeah. I think. It was absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. <laughs> I can picture it now. He was gorgeous. Uh, so that sort of memory that comes out of it, do you also think this is going to end? This has got to end at some point, either because it becomes unfunny yeah. or irrelevant or just we can't do it anymore. But even still, we were asked to sing it at Douglas Adams' memorial concert. Right. We were at the opening night of the comic strip. Wow. We sang it there, so that meant I got to work with Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson and Lexi Sale and all sure. those sort of people, and we performed at the comic strip for months afterwards, you know, just basically going on and singing this song. Right. It was fantastic fun. And then we did it in Edinburgh a couple of years ago, and we, we still did it, and it's still <laughs> got the same reaction. We did it at uh, a friend of ours, Andre Bzinski, whose daughter is one of the people who does uh, No Such Thing as a Fish yes. podcast. And uh, he died very sadly and suddenly, and there was a big show for him. Mm. We did it amazingly at the memorial service for Jeffrey Perkins, right. who was the other great member, which is you know one of the things that I'm most grateful about. Oh, Jesus Christ. No, I thought... it's, no it's a big, big deal. <laughs> I knew when I wrote this down this was going to do this to me. Yeah. Um, oh, God. 
God, I'm sorry, Rich. No, don't be silly. Don't be silly. It's this is the thing with this podcast, Mike. Is it's you're going to bring up emotions? Yeah, I didn't expect it. To, I, I didn't expect it to, to do. You know. Anyway, there we are. <laughs> Jeffrey was Jeffrey was absolutely one of the most marvelous and incredibly funny men. He was amazingly talented, and we luckily through this strange thing. I mean, I got the part in the review because Angus was sitting in. I was auditioning for lots of serious plays we were going to take to Edinburgh, and Angus was sitting in the thing, and he said. After I'd done the audition, he said, can you sing? And I said, yeah. He said, can you sing high? And I said, well, I've got a good falsetto. He said, okay, good. He said, can you sing me something so I can see you can sing? So I sang, I left my heart in San Francisco. And then he said, okay, now sing it and do something funny. So I went, uh, okay. I left my heart. <laughs> and he said, oh, great. You want to do the review? <laughs> so that serendipitous meeting led to the rest of my life in, in comedy and everything. All, it all comes out of that. And that amazing song, which, you know, right up until performing it, you know, at Jeffrey's Memorial. And it, it just, it always works. Yeah. And it, it doesn't really matter if you don't know what we're doing. <laughs> it's extraordinary. And I never expected to be still doing it in my 60s. No. You know. I mean, there's a chance that the heebie-jeebies might outlive all of the uh, of the Jeebies. There's one <laughs> left, true. I think, isn't there? It's a serendipitous choice as well, because I guess they, they seem such a comic band, especially yeah. at that point. That's why it's such a mm -hmm. brilliant pastiche. But they obviously were, like, fantastically talented songwriters and have forged this career beyond that as well. So it's uh, it was a good choice. It's interesting that they demonstrated several times that they don't really have, or they certainly didn't have much sense of humour no. about the road, which is, you know, with, do you think of the famous Clive Anderson interview? Yeah. And also they tried to sue us. Did they? Which is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're just a bunch of students singing this silly song. And, you know, they got lawyers onto us and everything. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That is bad. Yeah. This is clearly a parody. Yeah. You know, they, they haven't got a leg to stand on because of the laws of parody anyway, I would, I would imagine. Absolutely. No, and also copyright. There was yeah. nothing in it. It was an original tune. Of course, yeah. It just reminded you of things that they've done. Yeah, that's but no all. one's going to think that's the Bee <laughs> People no. are thinking, I'm going to see the Bee Gees tonight. <laughs> oh, well, they were a bit different than I imagined. <laughs> Although there were times when we were touring Australia where our the bloke who took us round is a fellow called Martin Bergman. You might know Martin Bergman. Yeah. He was a president of the Footlights many years ago. It rings a bell, yeah. Around the time of uh, Griff Rees-Jones and right, that yeah. crowd. Yeah. He, uh, he's married to the comedian Rita Rudner, lives in America. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was outrageous. He would constantly ring up nightclubs and say, yeah, hello, I'm Martin Bergman. I've got, um, I'm touring at the moment with the VGs. <laughs> we even went to one nightclub where the man had arranged a fashion show for us. And we sat there and you could see all these models coming out and looking at us thinking, that's not the Bee Gees. <laughs> so they should have sued you just for those experiences. That's true. All the free drinks you should have had off them. But yeah, that it is sort of weird when, I suppose because it is an act, the Bee Gees, that depends on people suspending their disbelief with it, really, you know, and suspending the fact that it's utterly ridiculous. I mean, it's utterly fucking, which is why it works. It's utterly ridiculous what they're doing. I know. But people like it and it works and, you know. And you look at that time with those open shirts yeah. and the medallions and the hair all blowing in the wind and ridiculous tans. Yeah. It's laughable, but they clearly didn't ever realise that it was laughable because, no. you know, Barry Gibbs still looks like that. <laughs> I don't, he tries to. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm really grateful for that silly scarf. 
And we never found a better way of doing it than sticking a piece of wire through it and then just twisting it round our neck and <laughs> making it stand up. Yeah. And it brought me to all those people. You know, at fantastic times. We toured Australia. We were out there and we bumped into the comic strip lot and they were all out there performing. Yeah. And I went on a mad, mad night out with Rick Mail. We went to a jazz club and then I can't really remember what we did after that. <laughs> but I think I've eventually left <laughs> as he wandered down the road with these two very beautiful women on his arm saying, look, my wife's back at the hotel, I'm going back. <laughs> yeah, it was just fantastic times. And, you know, and then Jeffrey, of course, lovely, lovely Jeffrey. And Jeffrey was the most gorgeous person to be with. He was the most generous man I've ever known. He made a lot of money because he became a, you know, he was a very successful producer. Yeah. He's involved in so many amazing shows over the years and nearly everybody who knew him. When he died, there was a, a sort of gathering about two days later at Drury Lane in the bar. Right. The word was put out, if you want to come and talk about Jeffrey, this is where we're going to meet. And you couldn't get in. Right. It was rammed. It was absolutely rammed with everybody. Yeah. I mean, I just and all of them saying, Jeffrey made my career. Jeffrey was the man who told me to do this. Jeffrey was the man who introduced me to this over and over and over again. Mm. It's amazing. And so he, you know, he made money, but nowhere near what he should have done because he wasn't, he didn't care about it. Yeah. He didn't care at all. At my 50th birthday party, I invited my old radioactive gang, you know, come and have lunch. And they all turned up in Tunbridge Wells and we went out and had a very nice lunch and very lovely wine. But I went down afterwards to pay for it and he, he paid right. for everything. Yeah. And he just did that all the time, that sort of thing. He was extremely generous and very funny. I have such astonishingly happy memories of touring with him, just laughing. He would make you laugh all the time. He was a man who laughed himself all the time. And he'd had terrible tragedy in his life. Right. They had a, a child that died of a cop death. Oh, right. And uh, it was the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen, to see Jeffrey carry this tiny coffin out of the, out of the church. And then... Uh, he made this speech, which was unbelievable. It was so moving and took such courage. I mean, I can't even talk about it now. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. And then, you know, we, <laughs> he once got, we did a show, and then he got very drunk afterwards. And we went back to the hotel. We were staying in a guest house. The bloke who ran it was a bit prissy. And Jeffrey in the morning told us that he'd, um, in the middle of the night, he'd felt sick. So he got up to go to the toilet, which was not in the room. Yeah. He had to go out into the hallway. And he, he ran up the stairs to where the toilet was to discover Angus in the toilet being sick, <laughs> which, of course, made him feel all the more sick. So he thought, okay, I'll head for the front door and I'll be sick outside. So he started running down the main stairs in just his underpants. <laughs> he got almost to the bottom of the stairs and he couldn't hold it anymore. And he was sick all over the wall, the flock wallpaper, and all down the stairs. And he thought, oh, my God. So he took his underpants off <laughs> and started cleaning it up, wiping the sick off the walls. <laughs> and he said that suddenly he was aware that somebody was standing behind him <laughs> and it was the proprietor of this guest house. And Jeffrey said, uh, I turned, I looked at him and I looked up and I said, somebody's been sick. <laughs> 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 the idea that, that you would voluntarily get up in the middle of the night naked and clean up somebody else's sick with your underpants. <laughs> anyway, oh, God. I'd, I'd never think about him without crying and laughing. Yeah. He's a lovely, lovely man. Yeah. 
and it was very sudden, wasn't it? His death as well. Yeah, which, yeah, very sad. Which made it all, um, which made it all the worse. But it's about getting older as well, isn't it? It's, you do start losing friends. And, yes, you do. And it's it's a very difficult thing to process and cope with. And some people you you really think are not going to die. Yeah. I mean, I've had other friends that I've lost, and you sort of go, well, they sort of brought it on themselves, you know, and they knew they were doing it. Yeah. Their lifestyle and the amount they smoked and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But Jeffrey, no, I, you know, he liked to drink. But we all did, yeah. And uh, it was it was such a shock, such a terrible shock, yeah. That he suddenly dropped dead, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think all the work that you guys did together was. I mean, I don't know if it really gets the credit it deserves. I suppose it does to an extent, but it is well remembered. But I think radioactive. I think it was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Radioactive, and it was those radio shows. Mm. I know you did KYTV as well, but I think both the radio versions of Hitchhiker's and Radioactive meant so much, I think, to my generation of you know, teenagers we would have been then or, you know, maybe even younger than that with Hitchhiker's, but it was that secret thing, you know, that you'd found... And it was such funny stuff. And Jeffrey was very, very funny on that show, as as uh, as all of you were. So it's yeah. The great thing is that Jeffrey was a terrible actor. Yeah, <laughs> he was a really terrible actor. But you used that to make that yeah. the characters he played were were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> we're stilted and <laughs> wooden kind of performances and it really worked and also in comedy I don't think that matters I don't think you know it's great to have a an amazing versatile person who can do all the accents mm. and do all the acting but actually comedy is about often is just about something indescribable it's about the relationship it's about it just felt like that was a team of people having the most fun together it felt like a group of mates messing around you could listen to it and almost think i could have a crack at this <laughs> <laughs> me and my mates are about as funny as this yeah. but it also because it wasn't like another radio four show and it did feel like a young person's show whereas a lot of radio four really didn't feel like that so mm. it's um i think it's a very important group of people within comedy and often those groups can get overlooked because there's a because there wasn't really a standout star from Radioactive in the way that, say, you know, on the hour, mm. you know, it's Coogan and Morris, you know, there's these standout stars amongst these fantastic other performers. Yeah, quite. But I think Radioactive, it just felt like this group of people having a fantastic time. I know Angus went on to maybe to be more successful in the, sort of the next decade, but... Uh, then, you know, things changed. <laughs> and, uh, Why, what but, happened? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I remember something happened. I can't remember what it was. But, uh, I think what happens was that they had his mobile phone. <laughs> right. Oh, dear, yeah. yeah. I heard even, they even had mine. Really? And it makes sense of a couple of things. Now, yeah. I, now I realise that. Disgraceful, isn't it? Absolutely yeah, yeah. disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. Astonishing. Whatever else you do in your life, it's your life, you know? I mean, it's. I think that people should be left alone. Yeah. It's just nobody else's business. No, as long as what you're doing is for yourself Quite. and only harming or helping yourself. And the irony is, of course, that within show business, all the people they, <laughs> they let go <laughs> with doing actual properly harmful criminal stuff. And, you know, it's getting better because the people in the 70s mm. were very, very bad people. Yeah. <laughs> terrible. Uh, so. Oh, no, don't. To go back, we supported Gary Glitter as the heebie-jeebies. Right, yeah. And I remember thinking, he's, he's a good performer. But then we went backstage. And in a way, you're sort of, you feel slightly culpable. Yeah. Because it was not, I mean, it hit you in the face, really. Just, we went backstage and there were just lots of young girls there. Yeah. And, you know, in that sort of groupie, but they were too young. 
yeah. were clearly too young. And I was only 23, 24 at the times. But you looked at these girls and thought, it's past your bedtime, isn't it? Yeah. But we didn't do anything about it. No, but, you know, but it's not your responsibility. But, you know, mm. also pop music and comedy attracted a young audience so it, you mm. know but you know i think because it was such a youth culture thing and i suppose that it was the case everywhere and if you weren't a horrible disgusting person it would yeah. you know it wouldn't really occur to you that other people would the other grown ups gary glitter would have been uh, 10 years older than you or something would he at that Absolutely, stage Absolutely, yeah. yeah yeah so you would think you would just you know as a reasonable person i don't think you can blame yourself for assuming other people aren't sort of evil monsters but um true but it is yeah it's it's astonishing and the changes that have subsequently happened while still not enough uh, no sadly but luckily you know i mean despite all that the number of people I've met and the times I've had with people have been have been glorious. I've yeah. had a most fantastic time. Yeah. And uh, it makes me laugh. And people say things to me. I haven't seen you on the telly recently. And I go, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. I've never been particularly bothered by any of that. Yeah. If I never did another television show, then I've done a lot. You know, I've had a yeah. great time. And, uh, you know... It's enough for me. I'm I'm very happy. Every time something comes along, I go, oh, yeah. it's still going. Yeah, and I think that's it. When I started out, you think, oh, you want to be the big star or you want to be super famous or you want all of this sort of stuff. But I think the real success within, I mean, any business, but especially this business, which is so hard to maintain a career in, as long as you're working and as long as you're happy with what you're working and it can be, I remember sort of having to restart stand-up and go back and really play the little clubs again. After having been on TV four years later, mm. I was then playing to six people in a in a room above a pub. Yeah. But I actually, I just thought, oh, because I hadn't done anything live for a little while, I just thought, this is all you need. As long as I can get up and do this, this is absolutely all yeah. I need. If it turns into a thousand people watching me, great. But if it stays, if it stays being six and they're having fun and it's still working. So I think it's just about finding your way through and, and keeping going. And, 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 you know, the danger of getting your head above the parapet is exactly that. Someone tries to knock you down or someone comes along and, yeah. and takes over. And so you've got to find the way to cope with the, the ups mm. and downs of it. But that's why if you can just stay solidly in the middle and as long as it doesn't dip down too far at any point do reasonably well be reasonably well respected but i think it is you know if you hang around long enough and if you've worked then you will you'll get the respect i think in any case but also yeah you know it's not even about that is it? it's about whether you're happy in yourself whether- no and it's the friends it's sort of like this doing this podcast it's um when i started to think oh who can i ask and I started thinking through the people that I knew, because you go down that route yeah. first of all. Uh, I couldn't believe the list I wrote. <laughs> I, I went, oh, my God. God, I know a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and, but I don't think that way. I, don't, I wouldn't go through life thinking I know lots of famous people. Uh, it doesn't occur to me. But I've, right through my career, I've been really, really lucky to work with and meet some amazing people, yeah. amazingly talented people. And have, you know, I'm pleased to say that I've sort of held my own when working with them. And that's that's a very no, ab- thing. Absolutely, definitely. And I think, you know, that's what's great about this podcast. When you look through it and you look through the list, there's some of the people who'll be on other podcasts and then there's some surprising choices and there's some people you, oh, wouldn't have thought, mm. but this podcast works with whoever 
because it can be serious, it can be funny, it can be whatever you want it to be, and it gives people an opportunity just to revel in something nice from their life and you know and, and throw away something yeah. nasty from their life. So it's perfect. But I really love that about this podcast is you'll just go, oh, Bobby Crush. I wasn't expecting that in the middle of, and what a <laughs> what a brilliant what a brilliant decision that was. <laughs> or whoever you know, that's just from the recent ones. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, we've talked about number four for mm. a good long time. Then a long time, but in a way, what comes out of it, I think, is probably into the fifth item. Yeah. Which is that I always feel, and people have said it to me, and I didn't really think about it to begin with, but I've always put family above career. Yeah. Always. When I'd finish a job in London when I was quite young, and they'd say, "Oh, right, should we go for a drink?" And I go, "Ah, no, I've got, I'm going to get a train because uh, I'll get back in time for bath time." Yeah. And it's been my driving force in life. I would drive through the night to get back to see the kids when they wake up, yeah. that sort of thing. I've always put family first. And even recently, the reason I'm doing this show on Saturday is because I did the tryout and then very lovely, Harry Hill said to me, do you know, do you want to do the show? We're doing it at the Park Theatre. And I said, ah, when is it? And he said, gave me the dates, it's now. And I said, uh, well, now I've got a family holiday booked. And I, because of COVID and everything, I really haven't had the chance. So I, I can't miss it. Yeah. So I turned down the job. And now I do get the chance. I do have the chance to perform it, just these two shows. But sure. it, it's sort of come round again. Yeah. But the thing I'd like to put in is over the years, I've got a grandson called Nathaniel. I've got four grandchildren, all gorgeous. I adore them all. Freddie, Leon, Edie and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's the oldest one. So he's the one that sort of, uh, you have that period when they're very small, where it's just them. And right from early on, he displayed just little elements of, Oh, God, he's keen on that, isn't he? He keeps doing that. He loves doing that. He would do things over and over and over again. Very particular. It's very. He loved detail. Mm. He would just really work on something. I remember sitting and watching him. I've got little videos of him doing it, just putting tiny little pebbles in the end of a watering can. Right. And every time going, just pop it in the bobbins, <laughs> pop it in the bobbins, just talking to himself and doing it for hours. It was. It's very endearing. And then it obviously became, this is, this is unusual. Yeah. At the age of three, we'd walk down the street and he'd go Ford, BMW, Volvo, Mercedes. He just knew all the badges, yeah. all the badges. The same with the kings and queens of England. And these are obvious traits of him being autistic. He is autistic and he has difficulties in his life. But the great joy is that also he has this amazing thing where when he finds something that he likes, he's right on it. He stays with it absolutely solidly. And I've made some recordings of me and him just talking. Right. I've done it on Zoom with him like this. Just say, do you want to call me up, Natty, and we'll have a chat. And I record them. And I also, quite often when we're out walking, I'll just get my phone out and press record and record us chatting as we walk. And he will be telling me about his latest thing in extraordinary detail. And all you have to do is listen. Mm. You just have to listen and go, oh, right, okay, why is that? Oh, right, I see. So I've got these recordings of him from, he's always been a very good talker, from him very young, right up to now, and he's now 10. So the latest one is something he did himself, and then he airdropped it to my phone. <laughs> it was him sitting on a beach, recording his own radio recording right. about being on the beach. <laughs> While everybody else was throwing stones for an hour or running up and down or making sandcastles, he was just talking into his phone. And so I've got that. That's the latest recording. Yeah. I'll play you a little bit of some, one of them. Then you'll get a, a sense of his voice as well. Let me see. I want you to tell me right from the beginning, Natty. The uh, glass tower. Can you remember back when you first started to play Minecraft? Um, yes. Hmm. 
I got frustrated with it a lot. Did you? But after a bit, I started building my house. My first house ever. Yeah. And I am going to recreate it in one of my work, probably my latest world. I will recreate my house. Right. And what was your first house like? Well, it was really small. I had a bed and a few bits of furniture. And it was made of birch log, which wasn't the best material to build out of. Amazing. I'm sorry, I could play it for no. hours. <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely thing to mm. it's a lovely thing to record them as well, Michael. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I'm really glad I started doing it. I've got I don't know what I'm gonna do with it, you know, probably listen to it on my deathbed you know why not uh, but i love all my grandchildren equally they're all completely individual and different and amazing people you know they're all fascinating in their own way yeah it's just every now and again because natty does this thing where he's, he can be very solitary which quite often is a thing that happens with an autistic child he just gets into it himself so this holiday we went on to wales recently beautiful beaches enormous great big pembrokeshire beaches the tide goes out and just loads of sand. And so Natty got the end of a fishing rod and started drawing the flags of the world on the sand. <laughs> and that's, you know, two hours of his life is going to be spent doing that. Yeah. He just, what shall I do next, Grandad? What shall I do next? Uh, I don't know. Uh, have you done Scotland? <laughs> yeah, I've done Scotland, yeah, yeah. And he knows them all. Yeah. He knows all of them. So this man, which was a rather posh bloke, walked past and went, oh, that's very good. They're all different flags, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Very good. Well done. He said, yes, I'm doing all the flags of the world. Man went, oh, right, what about uh, Kiribati? And then he wandered off. And when the man came back, my <laughs> wife said to him, that, that's Kiribati. He went, what? He said, no, I was joking. He doesn't really know Kiribati. Is that what it looks like? I'm, I wouldn't have the faintest idea. So that's his world. That's what he does. And yeah. it, it's a joy. It's a joy to be with him and to spend time with him. And, and that is, you know, as I say, the thing you say, you know, oh, you've got to put something show busy in. And, and I sort of have, yeah. but really because of the people involved in it yeah. and, you know, the fun I had, not because, you know, look what I did or anything. And uh, thinking through these things, I really, absolutely, I treasure all the friendships and the people I've met and my family yeah. and the, the luck I've had of meeting my wife when I did and, and the whole, everything that's happened since. It's been it's been brilliant fun. Yeah. Well, you know, and I left having a, my own family very late, which, you know, I both regret and don't regret, obviously, because I wouldn't, no, have, I would, no. I wouldn't have the family I had if I had a different family. It's a sort of weird thing to think about. And I've, I really found both uh, COVID and, you know, last year I had I had cancer last year, which I'm all better mm. from. And But, you know, it, it was the first thing I thought about when I thought, uh-oh, this could be it, was the kids and, and what it meant for them. <laughs> and and it may, it's really made me realise both those, the last two or three years and those sort of events, just how much I want to be here with them more than anything else. Which again, podcasting is great for it because we can do it just from home. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and our jobs are such that, even when we're working, we're often at home. And I was doing a lot of writing. I can still pop down and see them. They're still there to. They could distract me. I could distract them. Mm -hmm. And it, you don't have to have kids, and you don't. You know, you don't even have to have a family. Your family can be your friends. Your family can be the people you work with. Yeah. But it's the human relationships that are the most important. And and it's it's sort of the moral of every Hollywood film, isn't it? Of every kind of cheesy Hollywood just? film. But it's but it is for a reason because it's, you know, I think again, the older you get. And I doubt I will live to see my grandchildren, but, but maybe I will. Uh, but you, you know, never know. But the older you get, the more you realise how important that is and how 
all the other stuff is pleasant and fun and it but it's it's fripperies and it doesn't matter and you know it's those relationships that you're forging and exactly that I mean I just think the pleasure of just sitting and listening to a child talking and interacting with them a little bit and seeing what you you get out of them there's nothing better than that because it's pure and it will surprise you in a way that... Absolutely. What surprises you quite often is the depth of their knowledge. Yeah. You think you're telling them something. You think you're <laughs> revealing the world to them. And they then go, no, the thing about that granddad is, and off they go. Yeah. I mean, the other ones, Edie, my granddaughter, the only girl in the group, she's so funny. She's brilliantly funny. <laughs> she did a fantastic joke the other day. She was dressing dolls. We were dressing dolls and they were, we were dressing Elsa from Frozen. Yeah. And she put the dress on and everything and... There we are. I said, yeah, done. I said, oh, she hasn't got any shoes. She said, right, the cold never bothered her anyway. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, you know, I'd be happy if that's the only line I ever wrote. <laughs> it's genius. It is. It's, the imagination's great. And just because it's the brains aren't wired up into adulthood or the things that we're told to think, you can just get some properly surprising and amazing and I absolutely love it. But, yeah, that's a, a very good final choice there, Michael. I'm glad to see that most of them were... uh, There was a little tinge of show business in there and we could have had a lot more show business. (laughs) But all of them really are connected to... uh, Even the bad one is connected to family and life and, you know, childhood. Yeah, I always think if you want to know the showbiz stuff, it's it's on the internet. Yeah, of course. You you can find it. But if I'm going to talk about things that really matter to me, these are going to be not the things that are on the internet. Of course. And this is why this podcast is 200 episodes old and why it works, because you're getting stuff that, you know, you would not get from any other podcast. Even my fantastic podcast, Richard Chang's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Fantastic podcast. Well, I think this is, it is so emotive and it's lovely to see you getting emotional about your own choices and you're going to get stuff that you won't get anywhere else because, I mean, objects just have that additional depth to it, isn't it? And this additional meaning. Yeah. So that's why this is a genius piece of podcasting and I'm delighted to have been a part of it and I'm delighted it's such a success and it's a real honour to have been asked to interview you, Michael. So uh, well done. Good choices. I'll put them all in the time capsule. Do I literally have to do that? And uh, we'll bury them and then someone will find them and go, what the fuck's going on with here? I want to see you go off with a spade. I'm going to bury your grandson (laughs) in the garden. It's good to see you through your swimming badge in the bad one, rather than Gary Glitter. The swimming badge is worse than anything Gary <laughs> Mrs Thistlethwaite. <laughs> She's the real monster. <laughs> but uh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Michael, to do this. And thank you so much. Bless you for doing it. Here's the next 200, which you'll have done in about two weeks' time. The rate you get. It's true. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Richard Herring. And his guest, Mike Fenton-Stevens. My eternal thanks to the lovely Richard Herring for taking part in this unusual special 200th episode and for all his help in the past making My Time Capsule happen. Thanks, Rich. I hope you enjoyed this episode with me wittering on. Next week, we'll be back to the way it should be, with me listening to an array of interesting and delightful guests. But as it's the 200th episode, I would like to take the opportunity to thank a few people. Thanks to Acast for having faith in this idea. Thanks to my son, John, who produces this podcast and has provided the music under the auspices of Pass the Peas music. I couldn't do it without you, John. Thanks to all the advertisers and sponsors for providing the funds that mean we can afford to make this podcast. An enormous thanks to all my 200 guests for trusting us with their stories and for being so generous with their time. 
And of course, many, many, many thanks to you, our listeners, without whom we'd just be talking to ourselves. I mean, that is something I do quite often, but it's nice to have someone listen occasionally. It's been really rewarding receiving all your messages over the past two years on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And I'd especially like to thank the huge number of people who took the time to write a review to encourage other people to trust this podcast and to subscribe. I've been really thrilled to read them all. I just wish I could reply to each of you individually, but maybe understandably, Apple Podcasts and the others that allow reviews and comments won't let me communicate directly with the review in case I turn into a nightmare stalker again. Right, I'll see you next time for a very special episode, episode 201. And to end episode 200, I'll leave you with something that my friends and I have been saying for many years. I hope it helps you get through your day as it helps us. Be good to each other, be happy, but never forget, an owl in a sack troubles no man. Hmm. Bye. Bye.